Hey guys, welcome to the Filming with Josh podcast. I'm your host, Joshua Milligan, and today's episode is number 46, all about lav mics. This is the Filming with Josh podcast, brought to you by Rustic River Media. Welcome to the videographer's home for tips, tricks, and how to make flicks. Thanks, guys, for tuning in to today's episode. If you are new to the Filming with Josh podcast, this podcast is all about video production, photography, editing, script writing, and the business that goes with it all. We chat about everything here, and there's not a topic that we are too afraid to get to. It doesn't matter if it's contracts or pricing or things to do or not to do with your clients. We talk about it all. It is your home for tips, tricks, and how to make flicks, so thanks for joining in today. If you would like to learn more, go to the Filming with Josh Facebook group. Type in Filming with Josh on Facebook and ask to join the group today. And in that group, you will find conversations that not only go along with these podcasts, but many other things. It is your home to go post questions, share videos, ask for critiques and things of that nature. And people like myself will hop on and and have a conversation with you. So before we get into today's episode, I want to acknowledge what I talked about last week or the week before I think it was like a week or two ago, might have been two weeks now, where I was on the podcast. I started off a podcast. I said I was sitting on a computer all morning trying to get my lease access pass for trout fishing. And in case any of you listened to that and were curious, I had to go through that all again this morning and managed to get my lease access pass. So this morning has been completely wasted sitting at a computer, refreshing it over and over again, trying to get my access to go trout fishing here in New Braunfels. But I got in and I got one. So super pumped about that. So if you have no idea what I'm talking about, then this is an Easter egg for you to go back and look for that episode so you know what I'm talking about. And if you did listen to that episode, well, now you know that I got it. (laughs) Um, I want to give a brief update on my experience with the Sony A1. Um, I chatted a little bit last week about why I bought the A1. Um, And now I want to talk about my first couple experiences with it before I get into today's topic. And basically, I just want to kind of give kind of what my first impressions are. I already talked a little bit about uh, in the last podcast episode about the body and different specs and features and things. I'm not going to go into that today because I've already covered that in another podcast. But what I will say is what it's like working with it in the field. Um, So I've taken it on both a video shoot and a photo shoot, and my experiences have been nothing but outstanding. Um, On my first video shoot with it, um, I was doing a project for one of my customers, LGI Homes, and the way LGI Homes works is they hire me as a contract shooter. There, I, I have a few clients that I don't do post-production work for. Most all of my clients, I handle the entire thing from script writing and pre-production planning and location scouting, shooting, editing. We I normally handle the entire thing. But I do have a few clients that I do nothing but freelance shoot for. And LGI Homes is one of them because they have an in-house editing team and they basically just contract me to go shoot footage of these big communities that they uh, are building or are developing to kind of give updates on the communities and uh, what they're like, show off different features of them, the pool areas, the playgrounds, the walking trails, some of the houses and stuff. And they do these community videos and they do them all over the U.S. And I, I do most of the ones down in the San Antonio, um, Austin-ish kind of area. 
And when I, when I shoot for them, the way that they like me to shoot is uh, not in log. I shoot in log most of the time for all of my personal work, unless I'm like live streaming something. Um, but for some of my freelance clients like this, where I'm just getting hired as a contract shooter, um, they don't have a in-house log workflow. And so they want color burned into the camera. And so for me, I have to have a good in-camera color profile for them that they can do minimum tweaking to in post. And that's not to say they're not going to do any changes in post. You're kind of foolish if you think you're never going to touch your footage in post. Even if you don't shoot in log or don't shoot in raw, you're still going to want to adjust some things. I mean, that's just <laughs> part of editing. Um, but for these clients, they don't want to go through the log workflow. They just simply want burning color and then they'll just kind of take it from there, tweak it and move on. And in those circumstances in the past, I used to have to shoot that in like Cine 2 to kind of match my FS7, which had a hyper gamma that was similar to Cine 2. It was never a great match. My FS7 and like my A7 III or A7R 3 they never really matched with a burned in color science, which was frustrating because I'd be handing these customers um, footage that just just needed some tweaking in post to get them to match. And that just kind of annoyed me. I'd rather it look good out of camera. But on this shoot, I was able to use a Cinetone because now my FX6, my A7S III, and my A1 all have S Cinetone, which is a fantastic option for a burned-in color profile. And it looked fantastic. I've shot an S Cinetone a little bit um, for a couple of other jobs, like uh, live streams and stuff. But this is my first time where I, I shot um, a whole project on it, um, and I was extremely impressed with that Cine tone. I thought that the skin tones looked great. I thought the dynamic range, I mean, you must understand, it's the contrast and the way the blacks and the whites, the shadows and the highlights are, are all baked in. You can't get the same dynamic range that you would in, in raw or log. You can't expect to get that because you are burning everything in. So you are losing shadow and highlight information. But in post-production, you're gonna be losing a lot of that too, unless you're doing an HDR workflow. If you're if you're doing something in Rack 709 and you wanna you don't want your image to look flat, if you want to have any type of contrast in, in in your shot, which is natural, then you're gonna have to throw away information in post, right? The, the whole point of having a high dynamic range is so that when you're editing, you can choose what you throw away and what you don't throw away. If you wanna preserve your highlights and lift some of your shadows and make it a little flatter, you can. Or if you wanna crush your blacks or your shadows down and, and maybe push your highlights kinda of up, you can do that too. The whole point of shooting in a flat or raw or log-ish color profile or uh, shooting mode is so that you have the ability in post to pick and choose what you throw away and what you keep. Um, when you bake in the color and you're baking in the contrast, you are choosing to bake out some of that um, information. So you can't recover it in post the way you could if you were shooting in log or raw. But that's okay because that's the point, right? Is that you, the whole point is that you're not going to be editing it in post you are okay with burning that out because you're trying to get a finished product, not a product that you have to go to post and then choose what to get rid of. You are eliminating it in camera and, and shooting a ready-to-go baked color. So you can't expect that to have the same dynamic range as log or raw. It's just not gonna, that's just not how it works. And so for S-Cinetone, it obviously is not, like I said, it's not gonna have the same dynamic range, but it wasn't, 
it, it the way it handled like highlights was really smooth i felt and the way that it handled the shadows was really great it wasn't clipping harshly or anything like that the way that it rolled into the highlights the way it rolled in the shadows was really pleasing the skin tones looked amazing and i i mean i to me i was really happy with it if my client did zero tweaking in post and i would expect him to do some but if he did none if he did nothing literally just cut it and exported it I would be okay with that because I think the files look really good. So being able to go to a project where all three of my cameras have S-Cinetone is really nice. So right off the bat, the A1 um, replaced my R3 by giving me that, giving me S-Cinetone in all three cameras because my R3 didn't have it. And so my first impression was it's really nice to go on a shoot and have all three cameras be able to match whether you're shooting a log or you're baking in their color. So that, that was really nice. And then... As far as like the actual quality of the image outside of just the color, um, I thought that the A1 handled pixel binning really, really well. If you're not sure what pixel binning is, basically when you have a camera like, like the A7 III, for instance, the Sony A7 III. The Sony A7 III is built on a 24 megapixel sensor. It is a 4K shooting camera that takes a 6K sensor, which is 24 megapixels roughly. It takes a 6K sensor and it is down sampling that to 4K. And then when it goes to HD, however, the jump from 6K to HD is so big that it can't downsample anymore. It now has to pixel bin. And unfortunately on the A7 III, and this is why I'm choosing the A7 III for this example, is that the pixel bin to HD um, a lot of times doesn't look good. And on the a7 III, it didn't. It looked awful. And any time I shot in high frame rate on the a7 III, I was embarrassed of the results. I could not get myself to turn in footage to a customer that was shot on the a7 III in HD. But I had to shoot it in HD when I wanted high frame rates because that's the only way to achieve high frame rates in that camera. So I was never happy. Well, the A1 is essentially an 8K sensor. It is a 50 megapixel camera that has a sensor that is larger than 8K. And it shoots 8K footage. It's actually, it's actually a little bit larger than 8K and it scales it down to 8K. And it looks phenomenal. And to go from 8K to 4K, you can downsample to 4K just like you can from 6K to 4K on the A7 III. You can downsample to 4K on the A1, but only in crop mode. If you are in full frame mode and you are shooting 4K on the A1, it has to be pixel bend because the jump from full frame 8K sensor to full frame 4K on the A1, it can't do it. It can't downsample it directly. It has to be down, it has to be um, pixel bend, unfortunately. And so I was a little worried that the pixel bend full frame 4K on the A1 would not look that good because my experience with the Pixelbend A7 III HD footage was horrible. And the same thing was true on the A6300 and the A6500. All of those cameras looked bad in HD, even the A7R III. But to my surprise, the A1's Pixelbend full-frame 4K was indistinguishable from my A7S III and my FX6. I was blown away by that. And I had seen some videos that Gerald Undone did where he was kind of demonstrating how the Pixel Bend full frame 4K looked similar to the native 4K on the A7S III. Um, 
but I kind of had to see it for myself to believe it. And it's true. Like I shot everything in full frame 4K. I didn't shoot in 8K. I didn't shoot in HD and I did not shoot in the crop 4K. I simply shot pixel bend full frame 4K. And I shot it straight to S-Anytone with zero post-production done. And I compared it to my A7S III and my FX3 footage from the same day, indistinguishable. If I didn't shoot those shots and someone else did and they jumbled them all up and put them in front of me and said which camera was which, I wouldn't be able to tell you. And to me, that is massive because it means that not only is the A1 this 50 megapixel camera that shoots 30 frames per second at <laughs> 50 megapixels, and not only does it shoot 8K in video, but if you want to use it for 4K 120 or 4K 24 or 4K 30 or 60 and you want to shoot in pixel bend um, full frame or go into crop mode, either one, it's going to be great because the pixel bend full frame 4K should have been the camera's weakest shooting mode. But yet it was so good that it was indistinguishable from the A7S III. And if that's its weakest shooting mode, just imagine what happens when you shoot in 4K crop where it's actually downscaled, downsampled, or imagine when you're shooting in 8K. It's just incredible. So for my first impression of shooting video on a paid project to come home and be able to realize that in its weakest shooting mode, it matched my other two cameras, I was blown away. So the right off the bat, the camera was impressing me immensely. Plus the autofocus is so good. Now, to be honest with you, it's hard for me to tell the autofocus difference between the S3 and the A1. There is a difference. It is faster. It is computing autofocus points faster than the A7S III. It is better, but it's hard to notice it in real world shots simply because the A7S III is so good already. Uh, we're at a point right now where the autofocusing systems are getting so good that it really comes down to the usability of them and how they work more than the accuracy and the tracking abilities because they're so fast and so accurate now. So on the S3 and the A1, shooting them side by side and even shooting the FX6 that day, I thought they all just performed very, very well. But either way, A1's autofocus did amazing for me. I then, after that shoot was over, I took the A1 out on a photo shoot. I had uh, swapped out my Zeiss 25 uh, F2 prime lens recently and had picked up the 24-1.4 G Master. And I had also gotten rid of my 85 Prime and replaced it with the 135 1.8 G Master. And I had also recently picked up a Leola, Leola um, 100 millimeter f2.8 2x macro. And so I had these three, three newish lenses, relatively new. And I had this new A1 monstrous 30 frames per second. 50 megapixel photo camera. <laughs> and I really wanted to go try them out together and see how I like these newer lenses and to see how I like the camera. So I asked my wife, she is, uh, was 37 weeks pregnant, is 37 weeks pregnant. And so last night I said, Hey, let's go, let's go to a park, dress up, have you dress up. And I, I let's go to a park at sunset for the last hour of the day. Let me, and let me shoot some, some photographs of you. So she did, she dressed up for me and we went down to the park and she kind of um, wobbled. <laughs> She's so pregnant. So she kind of wobbled through the park um, and gave me about 40, 45 minutes before she's like, I'm done. 
But she gave me a little bit, about 40, 45 minutes to shoot some pictures of her. So I busted out the 13518. I busted out um, the 2414. And I even busted out the Leola um, macro lens for this really cool eye shot I got. But anyway, I, I shot a bunch of photographs of her. And I'm not a portrait per photographer. I don't do a lot of that. It's not that I don't have the equipment or the technology or the understanding. It's more that I am uncomfortable posing people. It just doesn't come natural to me like it does some people. I'm way better in a video setting. Or if I am doing photography, I'm better at wildlife or landscape. Or if it is people, action-based photography. But shooting like portraits and posing people is something I'm a little uncomfortable with. It's just just doesn't come natural to me. It feels a little awkward. Uh, and even with my wife, it's like, uh, I guess, look this way. <laughs> you know what I mean? It just doesn't come super natural to me. But fortunately, uh, she does photography. So she kind of had some, some poses and stuff that she was able to do naturally. And I just kind of shot shot her. And I was floored. The eye autofocus in the A1 is so good. And it it really nailed focus with her over and over and over and over again. And the flaring, the lens flaring on those two uh, Sony lenses was amazing. I only used the Leola to get um, a macro, a 2X macro shot of her eye, and that turned out really cool. A lot of people seem to like that shot. You can see like every vein in her eye. And I didn't even get I didn't even get as close to her as I could with that lens um, simply because it focuses so close since it's a 2X macro that I I was like in her face. Um, and she <laughs> she was starting to get mad because I had my lens like right up to her eye. So I had to um, kind of pull back some. But even not being as close as I could have been, I still was, uh, I love the results from that macro. It's an awesome macro. If you've never heard of it, uh, look it up. It's L-A, um, I think it's, L-A-O-W-A, Leola, something like that. Um, and it's the 100 millimeter F2.8 2X macro. 2X meaning it magnifies everything two times life size. Most macros are 1X. Um, and this is a 2X, so it's a great macro lens. And it used to retail for 450 because of COVID, it's now up to 500 bucks. But for $500, it's an amazing buy, in my opinion. Um, but I was really impressed with that. But the 135, 1.8, and the 2414 are what I shot with the most. And man, from a photo perspective, I thought it absolutely crushed it. The colors were just gorgeous. I came home and I have some Lightroom presets I like to work with for. Uh, um, skin tones and stuff. And I, I put some of those presets on and I did very little coloring to these photos because they just look so good. And they're so sharp. I shot this windmill off the 138, uh, the 135, 1.8, and the windmill was really far away. And at 50 megapixels, I cropped in like right on just the, like this, the, the back part of the windmill where like the little tail is. And you would have thought I shot it on a 400 millimeter lens and shot it like that. I mean, you, you could not tell the difference. It's so detailed. So from a photo standpoint, I was super excited. Um, it shoots so fast. To do the uh, macro, I put it in burst mode at 30 frames and uh, just kind of put the macro in close to her eye because she, you know, it's hard to keep, you know, if your subject's not locked down with a macro, it's really hard to get it perfectly in focus. So I just shot high burst. So I knew I'd get one or two that were in focus and to my surprise, I got a lot that were in focus because it's all manual. There's no autofocus with that lens. Um, so I was really impressed with that. So overall, my first experience is shooting video and photographs of the A1 has been superb. It is definitely um, the best mirrorless camera I've ever touched in my life. It's just flat out amazing. I absolutely love it. I would, if I had to choose between it and the S3, I would pick it over the S3. In fact, the only reason I would 
pick up the S3 over this camera, now that I know the Pixel Bend full frame 4K looks so good, the only reason I would pick up the S3 over this camera would be for the flip out screen and that's it. Now, that being said, I love my S3. I shoot with it a ton. That's not gonna change because I use three cameras all the time and the S3 is just awesome to work with. So that's not gonna change, but if I could only own one of those, it would be the A1 because it just has more features, more modes, more options like like 8K or, or uh, 4K in crop mode or the 50 megapixels photographs up to 30 frames per second. It's just got more features and things that are usable that opened up more doors. So if I could only own one, that would definitely be the one. I'm just fortunate that I have both. Um, but anyway, that's my update on the A1 for those of you who are interested. Now that we've talked about that, let's get into lav mics. When it comes to lav mics, there are some misunderstandings about how they work and kind of what their workflow is, where the audio even comes from. So I kind of want to clear some of that up today and I want to talk about how they work um, and what, how to like, what, what features to look for and how to set them up, that kind of thing. So first off, I want to say I'm starting, I'm starting this thing off by talking about wireless lav mics. I'm not going to talk about wired lav mics. So if you are looking for a podcast on wired lavs, this is not for you. <laughs> this is for wireless systems. Um, so basically, a wireless lav system is essentially just to kind of break it down for those of you who are who are unsure of all the components. Basically, what a wireless lav system is, is you have a transmitter, you have a receiver, and then you have the lav mic itself. Those are three different parts. It's important to understand that the lav is what creates the audio sound, not the transmitter, not the receiver. The transmitter and the receiver can affect the sound quality, but they are not what's creating the sound. The wired lav that plugs into the transmitter that is what is creating the sound. And what the transmitter does is it is it basically powers that lav mic, that wire with the mic on the end of it, it powers that and amplifies it and then transmits its audio to a receiver that's placed somewhere else. So the lav is what is creating the sound, not the transmitter, it's just powering it and amplifying it and carrying its signal. The reason why it's important to understand that is when you are picking out a lav system, sound quality may be something you look at, but you can change the sound quality in your lav system by simply swapping out the lav because that is where the quality of the sound is primarily coming from. I'll give you an example. I used to shoot on Sennheiser. Boy, I can't say that word. I used to shoot with Sennheiser G3, I think it's the G3, lav systems, and I really liked them. I had, a, I had a couple sets of them, and that's what I kind of uh, started with, and they're fantastic. You have really high, like, electrosonics, and those are kind of on, on the high end, and then you have, you know, some of your lower, um, cheaper-end lavs, and then you kind of have the middle ground, which is where um, Sony and Sennheiser play. And the Sennheiser systems are really good. Um, they are pretty common, and you will find them on tons of different sets, tons of different shoots and jobs. They're great. And I owned a couple sets of them, and I really liked them. But I swapped them out for Sony's years ago because back in 2016, I think, when yeah, 2016, when I bought my first FS7, 
I realized that while I liked my Sennheisers, the way the Sony's integrated with the cameras made a lot more sense. With the Sony Lav systems, if you are a Sony shooter, they open up a lot of doors for you because you can get dual trans or excuse me, dual receivers that can plug straight into the hot shoe of like an FX6 or FS7, for example, no wires, and that will unlock more channels of audio. So if you have an FX6, for instance, it's got two XLR ports on the side of the camera, you can plug a dual receiver in the hot shoe on top of the FX6 and get two more channels. So now you have two XLR inputs and two wireless channels on top. That's four total channels of audio. That's super useful. So many times in my career, I've used four channels of audio on a shoot, whether I'm miking four people up or I'm miking two people up and I have a shotgun mic left over or miking three people up and have a shotgun mic left over. I use three to four channels of audio all the time. So that's a huge part of why I switched. Being able to plug in a, a system that integrates with your camera to unlock more channels is huge. Plus, if you are a mirrorless shooter, you can plug them straight into your hot shoe on your mirrorless camera without needing any cables by using the same device that you'd use, unlike the FS7 or FX6, the, the SMAD adapter. So you just basically buy a receiver, single or a dual receiver, either one, and buy that adapter and you can plug it straight in the hot shoe of the camera. No wires. It's really nice. Used to, there were some issues with that, but they've kind of been ironed out over the years. So I, I like the way that Sony's LAV systems integrate with their cameras, so I switched to them. I did notice though, not long after I switched to Sony, that I felt like their LAVs did not sound as good as my Sennheisers. They just were flatter, they weren't as rich. However, fortunately, no, because I knew that you can change the audio by simply swapping out the lobs, that's what I did. Because again, the the what the mic sounds like is is the lob itself, not the transmitter or the receiver. So I had these lobs that came with the Sony system that I thought were kind of flat and dull, and I simply put them in a box and kept them as backups. And I went online and I bought Sankin. COS 11D lobs in Sony mount, and I replaced my Sony lobs with the Sankin lobs. And they, I, you know, because they were in Sony mount, they screwed right into the Sony transmitter. And now I'm running Sony transmitters and receivers, but with Sankin lobs. You can do the same thing with Countryman. You can do the same thing with Tram. There are other brands out there that make lobs. But the point is, is that most of these major lob manufacturers like Tram, Sankin, Countryman, who also make other mics too. They don't just make lobs, but you can go to those companies and you can get lobs for most wireless systems, whether you're shooting on Sony or you're shooting on uh, Electrosonics or you're shooting on Sennheiser. You can usually find for most systems aftermarket lobs that will fit your transmitter. Not every transmitter can do this, but most major brands of manufacturers or manufacturers out there of wireless systems you can do this for. So by swapping out my Sony lobs for the Sankin COS 11D lobs, I transformed the audio quality and not only matched what I had with my Sennheisers, but I surpassed them. They were now better than what I had in my Sennheisers, but with wireless receivers and transmitters that integrated in my camera system really well. Now, why am I telling you all this? Well, 
part of it is is because if you're going to understand LOV mics and how they work, it's important you understand that the LOV is separate from the transmitter and receiver and that that's where the audio comes from primarily. It's also important because if you have a system and you like your system but you're not totally sold on the quality of the LOV, don't feel like you have to sell your whole entire system. Just try upgrading your LOV. There's different LOVs at different price points. They range from different different prices, a little over 100 bucks to 4 or 500 bucks depending on what you want to get. But you can transform your audio quality by just swapping that out and getting it in the mic mount that fits your transmitter. That's all you have to do. So that's what I did and I keep the Sony LOVs as backups or if I'm on like a like a fishing show shoot or something where I know the lob might get torn up. I'm not going to put my expensive sanken lobs on on a fishing boat. Uh, so I'll run my Sonys for those situations. But um, they're mainly my backups and the Sankins are what I run now. So now that you understand what the lob does and its role, we now need to talk about what the transmitter and receiver do. The transmitter takes that lob, empowers it, gives it an amplified gain, and then it trans mits the audio to the to the receiver. And so its job is simply to power that mic and take its take its audio and send it wirelessly elsewhere. That's its sole job. It is important to know that it can play a role in the quality of your audio, not because not because it creates a sound, but because it can take away from the sound. If you have a transmitter that has frequency issues, you know, cell phone towers, things like that kind of interrupt it. Or if you have a transmitter that has a weak signal all the time and can't connect to the receiver very well, you might get that kind of cracking noise in your audio. So it can affect your sound, but the primary audio comes from the LOV and the transmitter, if it's a good transmitter, shouldn't it shouldn't affect your sound quality. It should just simply carry your signal. That's really all it should do. So when you are shopping for for LOV systems, make sure that you are shopping more for a reliable system than you are for the quality of the audio because you can always swap those mics out. Once your transmitter transmits the signal, the receiver at that point, its job is to take that signal, receive it, and send it to your final destination, whether that is a recorder or a mixer or a camera. It's just simply receiving that feed. And similar to the transmitter, your receiver's got to be of good quality. If your receiver's kind of, uh, if, if you buy a really cheap brand receiver and that signal is not very good, you will get that kind of cracking noise. So that's what you need to look for when you're shopping in a system. You know, how's the signal? Does the signal have interference issues? Uh, does the signal um, have pretty good distance or reach? Those are things you really need to be looking at the most. When you start to set up your LOV system, it's important to understand that there is a chain of command. You don't just simply turn them on, hit record, and go. There is a chain of command, a procedure you have to follow if you want to get good quality. The first thing that you do when you run a LOV system is you have to find a clear frequency. If you just turn on your, your, your LOV and your, trans, or your uh, transmitter and your receiver and you set them the same frequency, there is no guarantee that you're going to get good audio. You need a clean feed a clean frequency to work with. So you could do that one of two ways. The old school way is kind of doing it manually where you just listen to your headphones and you kind of hop through 
different frequencies until you find one that sounds like there's you know nothing on it and it sounds clean. However, most modern systems like the Sony's and Sennheiser's can have an auto scan feature and that's what I do. I use auto scan every single time I'm on a shoot and it's never failed me to date. In the, all the countries I've been in, all the states I've been in, all the cities I've been in, only one time have I ever not found a clean signal and it wasn't because the auto scan feature, it's just because they're there was so much RF problems in the building I was in in downtown Houston. But every everywhere else I've ever been, I've been able to find clean signals and it finds it for me automatically. So what I do is I turn on the receiver and I scan for a clean signal. And once it finds one, because it will go through them, it will scan through them and find the cleanest one for you automatically. It's super easy, so that's the first thing you want to do. And once you find it finds that clean signal, you want to set your transmitter to the same frequency so that the transmitter and the receiver can relay information to each other back and forth. What's nice about the Sony systems in particular is they have these little IR uh, infrared um, sensors on the side. So if you set your frequency on your receiver, you can hold your transmitters uh, right up next to it and the infrared will automatically set the channels. So it's super fast. So I just turn on the receiver, do a, do an auto scan, it finds a clear signal, and then it prompts me and says, would you like to um, sync the transmitter? And I say yes, and then I just hold the transmitter right next to it and it uses infrared to automatically set it for me. So it's super, super convenient. Once that's done, I now know I can, I can rest assured knowing I'm on a clean signal. That's step one. Step two is you have to set the audio level or the signal on your transmitter itself. A lot of people think that you control the audio of a lav system on the camera or recorder. However, that is actually the last step in the process. If your signal is too hot on the transmitter or the receiver, then it doesn't matter what your audio level is on your recorder or your camera, it will already be ruined by the time it gets there. So knowing this, step two is to set the audio level on your transmitter. On the Sony systems, the way it works on the transmitter, and most mic systems should work very similar to this, but on the Sony system, you would go to the menu and you would go down to where it says ATT, which stands for attenuation. When you go there, you'll notice that it's probably set at something like zero dB. That is, that is the amount of uh, amplified gain that is gonna be pushed towards your lav, right? Now, if your lav is kinda hot, it's kinda loud, then you need to add attenuation. It's kinda backwards, right? Most of the time when you add decibels to something, you are uh, making the signal hotter and hotter, but with your attenuation, it's actually the opposite because you are attenuating the, the signal. So the way it works on, on a LAV system when you see ATT or attenuation, if your LAV is too hot, and the signal's too hot, you actually add decibels to your attenuation and it actually quiet, quiets it down. So it's a little backwards. It's kind of hard to remember that. But the way that you set this is you simply, after you have your clean signal, you simply get your LAV, you mic up your person, and you have them speak at a normal speaking level, their level that they plan to speak at in your video or recording. And most, most transmitters will have a visible little audio bar that shows you how loud or quiet 
the audio levels are. Kind of like on a camera or a recorder, how you can see the decibels bouncing up and down. There's, there should be on most transmitters and receivers a little bar that bounces up and down that tells you how loud or quiet your um, audio is on the transmitter and receiver. And it's important that you dial this in. If it's set too low, then that means your lav mic is not getting enough gain. If it's set too high, then it means it's distorting the audio before it ever gets transmitted to your receiver. So it's really important that you understand that you have to get this right first. Because if you do not, it doesn't matter what your camera or audio recorder's levels are set at, the audio will already be shot before it ever gets there. So mic your person up and have them start talking at the speaking voice they plan to speak at and look at that audio level on your transmitter and see where the levels are bouncing. If they're bouncing about two-thirds or so up, up the way, the, uh, up, up the bar, then you know that you're good to go. If it's too low, then you need to back off on your attenuation, and if it's too high, you need to add decibels to your attenuation so that you can quiet that mic down. You want it to be bouncing around two-thirds of the way up. Now, the reason why I say two-thirds and not a decibel rating is most of these transmitters and receivers don't have enough information to show you the actual decibel level, so you're just wanting to look for a bar that's bouncing about two-thirds of the way up. Now, what happens if you have a transmitter and receiver that don't have a screen or anything on it that cannot show you um, the audio level settings like this, like can't show you where the levels are? Well, my answer to that is sell them and buy something else. If you're going to do a pro video shoot and you want to have good audio and you're going to do your own audio, you need to work with transmitters and receivers that you can see what the levels on them are. Because your camera and the recording levels, whether you're using a camera or an audio recorder, none of that matters if it's not set right in the transmitter and the receiver. It all starts at the transmitter and the receiver. So if you cannot tell what the levels are on your transmitter or receiver because it doesn't have that functionality, then you need to buy new transmitters and receivers. End of discussion. So once you have that set to where the levels bounce about two-thirds of the way on your transmitter, it's now time to go to your receiver. On your receiver, you won't have an attenuation setting, but what you will have is a line uh, out setting. So what you want to do is, and it might be different, it might be worded different on your particular system, but it should be similar to this. So basically, like for me, for in my case, I would on my Sony's, on my receivers, I would look at my receivers and I would see where the, where the levels are bouncing on my receivers, and I would set my um, out level to where it was sending, uh, where the levels are bouncing about two-thirds up the way, just like on the transmitter. It's just, instead of attenuation, I'm doing it with the actual line level. And this one is the opposite of, a of attenuation or ATT. It's the opposite. This one actually is where the higher the decibel, the hotter the signal, the lower the decibel, the lower the signal. I know it's confusing, but just remember, attenuation is backwards, line out is normal. So on line out on your receiver, you want that to be set to where it is bouncing two thirds of the way, just like on the transmitter. So if it's too hot, lower your decibels on your line out. And if it's too low, increase your decibels on your, on your uh, audio out, your audio out level. Once that is set, your audio out level, and you now know, all right, I have a clean signal on my wireless systems. It's a nice clean feed. And I know that my transmitter is transmitting a signal that's bouncing about two-thirds of the way on the audio levels. And I know that my receiver is outputting 
a signal that's bouncing about two-thirds of the way, then at that point, your final chain of command is where it's being recorded. You have to do these steps first, guys, before you get to the camera or recorder, or you will not get good audio unless you just get lucky, period. It's super important that you have a good um, chain of command here, because otherwise it will screw you up later on. It will get you. So once you have the transmitter and the receiver set, now go to your camera or your recorder, wherever it is that you're recording the wireless audio. And at that point, set your audio levels. And you're going to want them to bounce somewhere around negative 12. Negative 12 is pretty safe. If it bounces up to negative 6 or so when someone gets really loud, that's okay. Definitely don't ever let it hit zero, and you don't want to be close to zero either because you're, you're running too hot and you are running the risk of them peaking. So negative 12 is a really good spot on your camera um, or on your audio recorder. That's a really safe spot because if they get kind of hot, you have plenty of headroom, and if they quiet down a lot, you have enough gain or signal there to still get a clean feed. So negative 12 is a good round area to, to, to look at. Um, now, if your camera, for instance, is where if you're recording on a camera that doesn't give you actual decibel levels, then just like with the transmitters and receivers, try to get something around two thirds of the way. That'll be close enough. Um, but if you do have decibel levels, aim for negative 12. And that's basically all it is. If you want to invest in a lav system, the two things that you need to look at, in my opinion, if you're going to invest in a wireless lav system is what is, the, what is the transmitter and receiver quality like? Are they transmitting a good, clean signal with no interference issues that has a good signal strength? If those, are, if those two things are good, then you check the first box. And then the second box is, can you see what the audio levels are on the transmitter and receiver itself? Because if you can't, how could you possibly set the audio? You might could listen to the audio, but that's not a good way to do it. You're going to want to visibly look at the meters, right? So the second thing you want to look for when you're buying an audio system is, does it have a screen where I can visibly view or a way for me to physically view what the audio levels are sounding like or, or where they're hitting at on the transmitter and on the receiver? And then the third thing to look for is, if I'm going to buy this system and the first two boxes are checked... The last one is, can I find other brands of mics for this transmitter or can I only use the stock, the stock mics? And that's important because if you ever want to grow and you want to increase your audio quality down the road, like I did with my Sonys, it's nice to invest in a system like Sony or Sennheiser or another brand like that that has aftermarket options for lav mics. Because if you get something really cheap, and even if you can, even if it has a decent signal, and even if you can set the levels and see what the levels are on the transmitter and receiver, if there are no if there are no aftermarket options in terms of lav mics for that system, then there's no upgrade path for you. You'll have to, in order to change your audio quality down the road, you'll have to buy a whole new system. So I suggest looking for a system that has aftermarket options. And then those aftermarket options can go beyond just lavs. What, what about headsets? You ever been to like a church or an event and you see people speaking with headset mics on? If you get a lav system like a Sony or a Sennheiser or something similar that has aftermarket 
lobs available, there's a good chance there's also going to be headset options and stuff like that. And I do that all the time. I'll go to an, to an event, maybe I'm live streaming it and I'm helping, um, like they're, you know, I'm helping with the audio and I'm kind of doing everything. I, I will a lot of times rent headset mics and have those headset mics plug into my transmitters so that I can run headset mics. Cause for events, I like headset mics, but if my system had no aftermarket options, then I would have no headset options available. So I like to invest in a system that has the ability to monitor the audio levels on the, on the transmitter and receiver that have good signal strength with no RF issues or, or, uh, or interference issues, and that lastly have aftermarket headset and lob options available so I can increase and upgrade my sound quality down the road and so that I can get things like headset mics and stuff for different situations because you never know what kind of situation you're going to find yourself in. And then pick a clean signal, set your attenuation on your transmitter to two-thirds of the way up, set your audio out level on your receiver to two-thirds of the way up, and then lastly go to your camera and set your audio levels to negative 12, roughly, dB, to be safe, or two-thirds of the way up your camera if you don't have an actual decibel level. That's all you need to know. That's it. That's lobs in a nutshell. There's You could, you could go more in depth than this, but that is the uh, simplest way to put uh, how lav mic systems work and what to look for in a transmitter and a receiver and where the audio quality comes from. I hope that if you listen to this podcast, it clears some things up. It's kind of a tough podcast to talk about because it's a lot of techie, technical stuff involved. And if you've never heard of some of these things, I might have just blew your mind. <laughs> um, but if you, if that's the case, if that's you if, you, if you listen to this podcast and you're still a little confused, go to the Filming with Josh Facebook group type a question in there, post that question online, and we will answer it for you. So if you're if you're tripped up on anything I said today, go to the Filming with Josh group and ask that question, and we will help clear that up for you. Again, the whole point of Filming with Josh is to help you learn and grow in your video photography and business skills. Thanks, guys, for listening to today's podcast. I really appreciate it. Please subscribe to the channel and leave a review, and I look forward to seeing you guys next week. Take care. To learn more about Rustic River Media, visit us online at rusticriver.media. Thanks for listening to the Filming with Josh podcast. Catch every episode by hitting subscribe today.